welcome to Breakpoints, the SIDP podcast. My name is Ryan Shields. I'm an associate professor here at the University of Pittsburgh, and I'm joined today by Erin McCreary. She's an infectious diseases pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Welcome, Erin. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for uh, having me on this podcast we do together. Um, We're super excited today because we have another guest speaker for episode four. We are joined today by Dr. Paul Sachs. Dr. Sachs is the clinical director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Brigham and Women's. He's also the associate program director for the Partners ID Fellowship. He is a professor of medicine at Harvard University, Harvard Medicine. He is also, if you haven't listened enough, um, the editor-in-chief of Open Forum Infectious Diseases and has done a very cool thing with that journal where not only is it open access, which is awesome, but also they have a podcast that Dr. Sachs hosts with some of the, the authors of, of awesome papers in that journal. So, that's, so he has some experience, and actually I have to give a shout-out when we as SIDP decided to start this podcast endeavor. Dr. Sachs was kind enough to take time to talk to me and teach me about how running a podcast might look and might go. So thank you so much for that. Um, Some other things about Dr. Sachs, maybe arguably the most important thing about his bio is that he's also on Twitter and an avid fan of the best thing on the internet, which is the Thoughts of Dog Twitter account. Yeah, I would say that is the best thing about Twitter. it's a little little place of happiness in the world. I mean, it might so be the best thing that, about the world. I don't know. It might. It could be. Yeah, it could be. It might. That in baseball, uh, right? That in baseball. Uh, yes, I, I I am fond of baseball. I admit it. All right. Well, Dr. Sachs, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we are hoping that you can provide us and our audience and our listeners an update on the content from ID Week 2019 in the HIV space. So you do an incredible amount of work in this area. You see these patients. You know this. You're an expert in the field. Um, can you tell us if, if you weren't at ID Week 2019 or even if you were and you missed this content, what, what do we need to know? What is the latest and greatest? Sure. Happy to do so. Let me start out with some confirmatory data, and it has to do with the Gemini study, which compared dolutegravir, one of our best integrase inhibitors, plus either TDF-FTC or 3TC alone in treatment-naive patients. So this is a three versus a two-drug study, and these are the 96-week data, and they presented a subset analysis, which showed that across most of the baseline characteristics, the response to the two-drug arm was comparable to the three-drug arm. And, you know, it's important that there's one exception to this, and that was the CD4 cell count less than 200, where there was numerically lower response rates in the two-drug arm, dolotegavir lamivudine, and there was also uh, a lower response numerically in the people with the very highest viral loads, greater than 500,000. Now, importantly, these lower response rates were not associated with virologic failures with resistance. And in this study, encouragingly to date, there has been no buddy who's developed resistance to any of the components of the regimen. As you know, uh, dolutegravir lamivudine is the only two-drug regimen approved for initial therapy of HIV. And, uh, you know, we're seeing how it's going to play out in clinical practice. Certainly in this clinical trial, it has uh, done very well. So um, that's uh, the first confirmatory study. The other confirmatory study, which also is about a two-drug regimen, is the um, an adherence analysis from the Atlas and FLARE studies. The Atlas and FLARE studies, as a reminder, is uh, studies which took people who are virologically suppressed and then randomized them to continue their oral regimen or switch to a once-monthly two-injection regimen of 
cabotegravir rolpivirine. So that's every four weeks getting cabotegravir and rolpivirine as maintenance. And we know that this study showed non-inferiority of this strategy with very high uh, patient satisfaction rates. The adherence analysis demonstrated that among the injections in the study, and there were nearly 7,000 injections in the study, uh, only 2% of them occurred outside of the plus or minus seven-day injection window. And these people who were either too early or too late for their injections, none of them experienced treatment failure. So I mention this because this is coming soon to a clinic near you. Uh, It's likely to be approved either late this year or early next year as maintenance therapy for people who don't have resistance to integrase inhibitors or ropivirine. And uh, we shall see uh, how this plays out in clinical practice. One other comment about injectable ropivirine cabotegravir is that uh, the makers of this regimen, uh, did a survey, a phone survey, among over 500 people with HIV in the United States and Canada, and asked them to talk about their current regimen. They had to be virologically suppressed, self-reported, and said, you know, what would you like to to go on if you were to choose? You have three types of therapy to choose. One would be uh, once monthly injections. The other would be the best possible oral regimen you could take once a day. And the third would be stay on what you're on. And in that group of people who took the survey, 60% or so chose the once monthly injections. Now, uh, we, of course, will have to see once this gets approved how this is going to be done logistically. You know, asking all of these people to come in for their injections once a month is going to potentially put some stress on some clinics or some pharmacies or some community-based centers. Uh, But suffice to say, it does appear that at least a subset of our patients, what percentage we don't know, will be switching their stable HIV regimens to injectable cabotegravirapivirine once this gets approved. All right, moving on, a couple more things to mention. There was a very nicely done study from uh, Jefferson in Philadelphia on switching from tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate to tenofovir alafenamide. And uh, I just uh, underscore that this study was published in a very fine journal that happens to be called OFID at the same day. Uh, and it was entitled Changes in Body Mass Index and Atherosclerotic Disease Risk Score After Switching from TDF to TAF. What they showed was that in these 110 individuals who were virologically suppressed who only changed TDF to TAF, uh, what happened after they were followed up about a year is they gained on average about three pounds and their body mass index increased by 0.5 kilograms per meter squared. And also all of their lipid components significantly increased total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and HDL cholesterol. And as a result, their atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk score increased from 6.9% to 8.1%. Now, important limitations of the study, there's no control group, caloric intake, you know, people get older and they get heavier, uh, but it does appear, and we now know this, that people on TAF versus TDF-containing regimens do gain more weight. Now, whether this is because TDF is somehow suppressing appetite, there is some evidence for that in a placebo-controlled trial for PrEP, or whether TAF is actually encouraging weight gain is totally unclear at this point, and the mechanism of this is not known. But I think what we need to keep an eye on is what the clinical consequences of this weight gain are. Speaking of clinical consequences, I do want to mention one very well-done study, quite large, uh, looking at uh, people starting therapy in the United States from 2007 to 2016 in the NA Accord uh, study, uh, looking at the kind of regimen they chose and then the 
ultimate incidence of diabetes. Remember, there are, weight gain is associated with all antiretroviral regimens, and it does appear that integrase-based regimens are lead to more weight gain. And the, really, the, the investigators were asking the question, well, does this have clinical consequences? Well, they had uh, over 20,000 people who started therapy. And what they demonstrated that starting therapy with certain integrase inhibitors did appear to be associated with a higher incidence of diabetes when you adjust for other confounding factors. That was also true for boosted protease inhibitors. It was not seen uniformly across the integrase inhibitors with the caveat that the numbers who started dolutegravir um, and were lower than elvitegravir and, uh, and raltegravir. But it does appear that these weight changes that we're seeing in clinical practice are, and being reported now in clinical trials may have consequences. One last study to mention, a very small one, because it actually has a lot of practical implications for clinical practice. Um, as you may recall, when people have protease inhibitor resistance, that's specifically darunavir resistance mutations, we ask them to take twice daily darunavir, which is a real pain, you know, because you have to take twice as much vertonavir, um, whereas people without darunavir resistance mutations can take once daily darunavir or can even take darunavir cobacistat, co-formulated. Uh, in a, a study from Orlando, 22 patients who did have darunavir resistance mutations and had either one or two other active agents in the regimen and were suppressed were switched to darunavir ritonavir once daily from twice daily, and they maintained virologic suppression. So I think what this is showing us is that as long as you have other active agents in the regimen, that uh, even if you have some degree of darunavir resistance, then you can switch to once daily. It has, you know, the limitation here is retrospective analysis. It's not tested prospectively, but certainly something I've done in clinical practice and something I think in selected patients you could do as well. So that is a very brief wrap-up of some of the highlights on HIV studies from ID Week. Dr. Sachs, thank you so much. That was wonderful. Um, and for anyone who doesn't follow Dr. Sachs already, he also, I think we mentioned this, but writes an amazing blog, um, HIV and ID Observations, where he does rapid reviews of other conferences as well. Um, so thank you so much for that. I have a quick question, if that's okay, because I'm just really intrigued um, as to what you do clinically in your practice with the signal and integrase inhibitors and with TAF. Obviously, those drugs have other benefits, and so we were when TAF first came out, the switching everyone from TDF to TAF for the supposed clinical benefits, and now we're seeing there might be some clinical risks as well. How do you manage this conversation in your patients when you're picking an optimal regimen for them? Well, the the benefits of switching TDF to TAF are that you have a better renal and bone safety profile, but I think we do need to counsel our patients that that switch might be associated with weight gain. And again, whether that weight gain is mediated by, you know, the stopping the TDF effect, because that's been suppressing weight, or whether it's something about TAF is really unclear at this point. Um, so I have that conversation with them. I do actually strongly recommend the switch, especially in patients who have uh, comorbidities and are older, because uh, as you as you know, a TDF-related renal disease, once it occurs, sometimes it's very difficult to, to get, get back to normal. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. That's interesting. The other thing I loved that you mentioned that I just want to throw out there, I love that we're, we're pulling patients and asking them what they would like to do for their treatment regimen. I think the, I think HIV probably does this better than any other specialty. The more we can involve the patient in their care, I think we see better outcomes. And so it's really yeah. intriguing yep. that up to 60% we're choosing that long-acting injectable and definitely yeah. something we'll have to consider. Yeah. So. I think a, a lot of people think that this long-acting injectable um, – will ultimately be the way HIV therapy goes, but it, it, it may or may not be wide, widely adapted 
in this first iteration, which is cabotecavirapivirine. Remember, these are two injections every month, uh, and they have to be given by a healthcare provider, so they're not self-administered. But one could envision one day something given every three months, every six months, you know, at home, um, self-administered or something like that, and there would be a, a, you know, that could be could have a significant uptake. Yeah, what a world that would be. That'd be amazing. But thank you again so much for joining us. Um, we really appreciate your updates and your expertise in this area. You're welcome. Thanks very much, Aaron Ryan. Bye. Man, Paul Sachs is so impressive and such an inspiration to hear him just summarize all that data so succinctly. And I tell you, Aaron, he is so good at this podcast thing, isn't he? He is very good, Ryan. He is arguably much better than we are. But it is an honor to learn from him in both the podcasting realm and about all that data. So let's keep going in episode four. On that note, I want to transition to another phenomenal speaker, and that's Dr. Francis Collins. He's the director of the NIH, and he gave the opening keynote address at ID Week 2019 this year. And his talk was all about how how genomics has really revolutionized medicine in general. And wow, what a big topic to talk about. But he really broke it down into some succinct takeaways and applications of genomics that I want to go through now. And he started his talk by talking about the Human Genome Project, which really in the 1990s was a very controversial endeavor. And most scientists thought, hey, this will never work. You're never going to be able to map the entire genome. Well, of course, we know now that that project was successful, and it's actually led to a great investment in DNA sequencing in general. And this is one of the rare technologies where we can say now with confidence that it's become faster, better, and cheaper to do DNA sequencing. And because of that, the applications have just blossomed, starting first with the human microbiome. We know that the microbiome certainly plays an important role in metabolism, the immune response, mental health, and even autoimmune diseases. And we now have all this publicly available information because of the way we're able to use genomics to understand the human microbiome. Number two is the impact that genomics has had on outbreak detection and epidemiology. And Dr. Collins, of course, being from the NIH, talked about the CRE outbreak at the NIH where they were able to use genomics to link all the transmissions of a KPC-producing Klebsiella at their hospital by sequencing all the strains and linking them back to one particular index patient. So certainly we know genomics is advancing the way we do healthcare epidemiology and infection control now as well. The next application is diagnostics. And we've talked a lot in these podcasts, and certainly we all know at our local hospital levels, that rapid diagnostics are now becoming the standard of care in microbiology labs. But keep in mind where we are at with diagnostics would not be possible without all the advances in DNA sequencing, so much so now that we have these PCR-based platforms, which we are able to amplify whatever sequence we're looking for to identify that sequence and get information very quickly, now even direct from patient specimens. So this has led to a huge investment in different companies and biotech companies looking into diagnostics, and certainly NIH and BARDA have inspired a lot of this work and put a lot of investments in it. Dr. Collins then moved on to talk about the CRISPR technology, and particularly CRISPR-Cas9. And if you're unfamiliar with this, this is a relatively new technology, but it's so cool. Essentially, this is like your your Control-F find and replace function but at a a genome level. So basically what you can do is find a particular piece of DNA with CRISPR, and you can pull out that piece of DNA with these Cas9 enzymes and replace it with whatever you want. And think about the potential implications of this. Dr. Collins talked about one specific implication, and that's curing HIV. We've known for years now that the virus continues to lurk in these long-term reservoirs, and it's particularly hard to find the virus when patients are fully suppressed on antiretrovirals. 
So perhaps we need something like this CRISPR-Cas9 technology to go find the virus, whatever it's hiding, and replace certain parts of the DNA that might ultimately help us get to something that is totally revolutionary, and that's the idea of curing HIV. That's so amazing. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Ryan. It's just listening to all these data and all of this science coming out. Like, it's just astounding what people are doing in this field. And infectious diseases is just so cool, honestly. Even just the fact that you're undetectable on antiretroviral therapy. Like, what a world we live in, right? The development of those drugs over the past 30 years. It's just really remarkable. It's amazing where we've come from. And I think Paul Sachs did such a great job of explaining all the advances in antiretrovirals now, which are happening so quickly. Now, speaking of the CRISPR technologies, it's also important to note that there's many, many companies working on this technology. So I think we're just going to see a flurry of new applications in the next few years. Uh, And really what Dr. Collins is talking about here is really just the tip of the iceberg. But just imagine the possibilities of being able to find DNA and replace it with what you want. The final thing he talked about, I think, is so cool. And this is now... Um, what I would see as, and Dr. Collins mentioned it as, a platform for remarkable discovery all across disciplines, and that's this idea of the All of Us campaign. What this is, is this is a historic longitudinal effort to enroll patients, sequence their genomes, and track them over time. And by tracking them over time, the goal of this project is to track patients indefinitely. And so what this is, is the NIH has invested a significant amount of money to enroll at least 1 million patients in this platform study. And these are patients ideally suited to be motivated by research where patients will be enrolled. They'll give a blood sample so we can, we can um, map their genome. They'll fill out questionnaires and other surveys. They'll wear these devices where we can understand uh, their movements and wear sensors so we can understand their habits. And they'll also make their electronic health records available. And the goal then is to follow these patients indefinitely over time to monitor all types of, of health, health outcomes, not including perhaps infectious diseases as well. So think about this from a research perspective then. You may have a million patients with precision medicine kind of tools available to you from the genome to their clinical outcomes to their daily activities all within one central reservoir. So this is a huge effort by the NIH, and thus far, as of the meeting, they've enrolled already 322,000 patients in just a year and a half of doing this study. So if you're interested in participating, you can actually be a study participant in this study. You can go to www.joinallofus.org for more information. And if this is something you're interested in, they're still looking for another 600,000 patients. And this could be something that you could actively participate in to not only understand the research process, but see firsthand all the information that's going to be garnered from this study. Man, that is such a remarkable effort. Can you imagine one million patients and tracking all that data? It's, it's incredible, right? We, we've talked a lot about these small retrospective studies that have 40 or 50 patients, the breadth of a million patients where we know everything about them would just be truly remarkable and I do believe will lead to a lot of new discoveries in medicine. Yeah, I mean, I can't even get data on my 20 patients on my consult list right now when they go to the hospital down the street. So I think these advances connecting EHR records and being able to globally see pictures of patients will help us be better. Yep. So genomics absolutely have revolutionized medicine. So I want to move on now to our favorite segment in doing these podcasts, and that's our nerd out moment. Wait, that wasn't your nerd out moment? No. You just talked about genomics for 10 minutes. Well, that's true. I learned a lot of things. 
that was probably Francis Collins' nerd out moment. I don't want to steal his glory. He did give the opening keynote address after all. One day, Ryan. One so, day. We have a podcast. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's arguably as good as Paul Sachs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, focus. Uh, all right. On the best part of the podcast. Let's not get derailed here. And let's get back to our nerd out moment. And for me at, at ID Week 2019. Oh, are you going first? That is the phages to the rescue Ryan's, Should I not? Ryan's nerding out first. No, you can go first. Okay. I'm excited I'm, for you. So my nerd out moment at ID Week 2019 was a session called Phages to the Rescue. And certainly you've heard the buzz in the popular media and you've seen the individual case reports, but bacterial phages are coming back now. And part of this is driven by all of the problems we have with multidrug resistant bacteria and the limitations of antibiotics. So more and more there's time and energy spent on investigating bacteriophages. Now, this session was broken down into three speakers, the first of which was Jason Gill. Um, and he talked a lot about the history of bacteriophages, which were really discovered all the way back in 1917. So they're over a century old, and they were broadly used as therapeutic options from 1917 to 1940, really before the antibiotic era as we've come to know it. And I think what's important to understand about bacteriophages, to put everyone on the same page, is what we know, these are viruses that recognize host bacteria. What they do is they bind to ligands in the outer membrane or cell wall of the bacteria, and they inject their DNA into the host and generally replicate within the host to a point where they need to be excised and they lyse the cell and are released into the environment and go on to infect other bacteria. Now, bacteriophages really control the replication of bacteria in the environment and in the ecology in general, but we know perhaps these can be harnessed as a therapeutic option as well. And there's several advantages to, of using bacteriophage therapy compared to antibiotics. Number one, that these are non-toxic to the human host. Bacteriophages are already very common in the environment, and we don't see side effects like we do with antibiotics, for instance. Number two is they replicate at the site of infection. So where you have more bacteria causing more infection, you potentially will have more bacteriophages being replicated at the site of infection. And we know with some antibiotics, certainly we have pharmacokinetic limitations to them. That will not be the case for bacteriophages because they will be at the site of infection. We also know that bacteriophages are very specific to their target. And because they're so specific, perhaps we'll see less collateral damage like we do with many other antibiotics that do things like, for instance, disrupt the gut microbiome. And finally, resistance to bacteriophage therapy does not confer cross-resistance to other antibiotics. So using bacteriophages won't have an impact on our ability to use antibiotics for the same patient. Now, on the other hand, because bacteriophages are so specific, oftentimes we have to give a cocktail of different phages to make sure we're hitting all the targets. We know certainly bacterial populations are diverse, so most likely for bacteriophages to be successful, we'll need a diverse cocktail of phages to hit and target all these diverse bacteria. Yeah, absolutely. But a, a quick note on that specific thing, because when I first started learning about phages, Ryan, I learned that, you know, phages are super specific. And one of our own colleagues, Dr. Daria Van Tyne, just gave an exceptional grand rounds on this topic last week. And I learned from her work in finding phages that they are specific, but they also, each individual phage can also impact multiple strains of, a, of say, pseudomonas, for example. And so when you kind of map these, they'll have all these pseudo isolates all these phages and they grid them and show which phages act against which isolates. And there can be isolates that aren't susceptible to any phages. There can be isolates that are susceptible to multiple or to just one particular phage. So this is like uber complex, intricate science and the people doing work in the space are, it's really very incredible. And I agree with you. I'm nerding out over here. I love seeing you nerd out on this because this stuff is so cool. And we, as we start thinking about non-antibiotic therapeutic options, bacteriophages is something that's gaining more and more steam. 
The next presenter was Vincent Vichetti, and his focus was really on license. And I want to talk for a minute about lysins because mechanistically, we know that the way bacteriophages work is they bind to these ligands on the cell wall, inject their DNA, and replicate. But eventually, the phage has to get outside the cell. And the way they do this is they produce a lysin enzyme. And that enzyme produced by the bacteriophage is then responsible for cleaving the bonds within the cell wall, particularly the peptidoglycan, where the membrane externalizes and the, and the bacteriophages are then released. But it's that lysin enzyme that has to be produced for the phage to get outside of the cell. So the approach with lysins as a therapeutic option then is, well, what if we just take that enzyme, that lysin enzyme, and we make it recombinantly, and then we give it to patients? And so now you're giving the lysin enzyme extracellularly, but as it turns out, it does the exact same thing that it does inside the cell, is that it cleaves these bonds in the peptidoglycan cell wall, and then the bacteria lysin die, uh, much like they would with some common antibiotics. Now, this may sound familiar to you, this idea of lysins, because the lysin that has been developed specifically for Staph aureus is now known as exabicase. And what's unique about exabicase, as we talked about in our ECMID podcast, this is now the first lysin to make it all the way through phase two clinical trials and is now entering phase three randomized controlled trials for treatment of Staph aureus bacteremia. But Dr. Fischetti also pointed out something very important, is that lysins are different for gram-positive and gram-negative pathogens because for gram-positive lysins, they generally have two domains, a catalytic domain on one end, which cleaves these bonds in the peptidoglycan wall that we talked about, but they also have a binding domain on the other, on the other end, and that binding domain is very important for associating with the cell wall, and specifically it associates with different carbohydrates in the cell wall, and that's how it works for gram-positives. But of course, we know for gram-negative organisms, they have this outer cell membrane, which adds a layer of complexity. So for gram-negative lysins, they only just have one domain. They have the catalytic domain, but they also, on the other end, instead of a second domain that binds to, uh, that is a binding domain, what it is is a small positive charge, much like a peptide region. And that positive charge is very important for disrupting this outer cell membrane in the gram-negative cell. Now, the big kicker with gram-negative lysins is that that positive charge on the lysin actually gets inactivated by serum proteins. So in the serum, it's very hard to give gram-negative lysins because they get inactivated with the serum proteins. So at this point, gram-negative lysins have been studied, but really only studied when they're given topically where you're not worried about inactivation with serum proteins, something that I found really interesting in the talk. That is really interesting. I didn't know that and hadn't thought about that. And I've obviously heard about Exabicase, but this wasn't in the gram-negative space. So that's very cool. Yeah. So speaking of the gram-negatives, the, the last presenter was Saima Aslam from, from California. And she really then presented some of the initial clinical experience with using bacteriophages in general for multidrug-resistant pathogens. And thus far, the number of cases is relatively small, and these are mostly case reports and case series, but I think the pathogens are really fascinating. You're talking about patients here with Burkholderia cepatia, Mycobacterium abscessus, Refractory pseudomonas, and Acinetobacter. These are the pathogens that we encounter rarely, but are just so difficult to eradicate with standard antibiotics. And in general, the experience with bacteriophages has been favorable. But there's still major challenges in using bacteriophages for patients, and she outlined some of these challenges. Ultimately, we still need to know what dose is, is important for bacteriophages, what's the right combination, how stable are these, and what's the best way to administer them. The bacteriophage market also lacks manufacturing and commercial partners that make this readily available for the public. 
And in general, and this has been our experience when we've used bacteriophages in Pittsburgh as well, is that there may be long delays in identifying the right patient, but then there's a subsequent delay in getting the right bacteriophage cocktail for them and infusing it to the patient. And certainly we need more studies to understand the PKPD relationships between bacteriophages and how patients will ultimately respond to them. And all of these things can be supported by future funding. But I think it's just one of these thought-provoking topics of bacteriophages is, is this legitimately going to be a therapeutic option for us in the next, say, five to 10 years? And I think what we're learning about license now with Exabicase may lead the charge in this field. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that whole part of identifying a phage is important. So the earlier you can get an isolate to a phage lab, the better so they can start screening. I learned we had a patient recently with multidrug resistant Burkholderia, and there are no lytic phages for Burkholderia. This is, in fact, a very complicated pathogen in terms of antibiotic and phages. So um, a lot going on in that space. Moving into my nerd out moment. So this was a session, actually, Ryan, this, you spoke in this session, um, but I'm not going to talk about what you talked about because you talked about AV-Bactam. And oh, you already classic. Did, you already did that a lot. Um, but this was a session. And now of, I feel offended. No, you're, you're, you're excellent. <laughs> Ryan's an excellent speaker, as you guys can tell on this podcast. We just already talked about AV-Bactam. I know. But no, I know. I'm being sarcastic. So this was a session on Saturday. I stayed around till end of the meeting Saturday for this session. And so Dr. Alessandro Catalina from Italy talked all about plasmids. Ryan talked about AV-Bactam and Vaver-Bactam resistance, which was exceptional. And then Dr. Alejandro Vila from Argentina talked about metallobetalactamases and metallobetalactam inhibitors. And I thought this was fascinating. Fascinating. So what he walked through was a lot of his lab's work and his research, which was about looking at the protein determinants of host specificity for metallobetalactamases and the overall dissemination worldwide of metallobetalactamases. He also discussed the challenge of designing a metallobetalactamase inhibitor and why we don't have one yet. And there are three reasons for this. First, There is no real mechanistic covalent intermediate that's readily identifiable in a metallobetalactamase like serine betalactamases have. And so AV-Bactam and Vaver-Bactam are working in that intermediate space, and we haven't mechanistically honed in on that for metallos. The next component is that metallobetalactamases have a zinc-dependent active site. And so that, that, that's a metal. That's less selective. So when you're targeting zinc, your bug looks more like a human. The enzymatic folds of metallobetalactamases are similar to human enzymes that contain iron, and so these drugs have more toxicity than other drugs because they're less specific. And then finally, the metallobetalactamases are structurally diverse. So there's B1, B2, and B3 enzyme delineations within this metallobetalactamase ambler class B class, and all the B1, B2, B3s all have different active sites. And so one universal metallobetalactamase inhibitor is not easy to design. So their question and what his research focuses on is, are there common mechanistic features of metallobetalactamases really regardless of their structure that are not present in human enzymes that we can target? And so there's a paper published um, by Maria Natalia Lisa and colleagues in 2016 2016, in Nature Communications, and the title of this paper is A General Reaction Mechanism for Carbapenem Hydrolysis by Mononuclear and Binuclear Metallobetalactamases. And this was, he actually said, I don't expect you guys to read this paper. I can't even read this paper. It's a joke, obviously, but it's very complex science. But that is how they tried to explore problem one, which is this mechanistic covalent intermediate. Can we target that? What they found is that all metallos, in fact, do go through the same 
intermediate, even when they have a different structure. So this is the opportunity to intervene and inhibit should we be able to design something, should that exist. And this intermediate is in fact unique from serine beta-lactamases. This work took them over 10 years, but they did find a compound that mirrors this intermediate and they're working in this space. He couldn't show us the compound yet, but this is kind of the future of science. Um, and I think, Ryan, you're going to talk us through some beta-lactamase inhibitors coming to market that do, in fact, inhibit metallobeta-lactamases. So very, very neat. The second component is the zinc component. And so zinc is required for the pathogenesis and the virulence of these enzymes. Metallobeta-lactamases bind zinc in the bacterial periplasma. So healthy people with robust immune systems secrete calprotectin, which actually works to sequester zinc ions at the site of infection. And so if the amount of zinc is low, metallobeta-lactamases don't work. Now, when you have sick and unhealthy people, that's when this becomes worse and more virulent. So there's something to the zinc. So we have the mechanistic intermediate we can target, and then we can also potentially target the zinc by removing zinc. If we remove zinc, the enzyme loses activity. The MIC of the organism will, in fact, go down. Now, this isn't as simple as it sounds because different enzymes behave differently. They have different affinity for zinc. And so the amount of enzyme present, the amount of zinc present, and the affinities will change. For example, VIM2, a metallobeta-lactamase, is actually degraded in the periplasma when zinc is removed. So removing zinc from a pathogen and that has VIM2 would be quite effective in getting rid of the virulence of that beta-lactamase. NDM is also degraded, but it's not degraded as rapidly as VIM2. And NDM is also bound to the outer membrane, whereas VIM2 just kind of free floats in the periplasma. And so this anchoring protein actually protects NDM from degradation, even if you remove the zinc. And so this is why, one of the reasons why NDM has been such a successfully transmitted metallo all over the world, because it survives. Um, and so I thought that was really fascinating. Also, metallos can mutate to have enhanced zinc affinity and enhanced survival overall. Very, very cool. Someone in the audience asked a question. I think this was actually our colleague, Sam Aiken. He got up and said, you know, this is amazing data. Thanks for walking us through this. I hadn't seen this presented like this before. And he's like, considering all of those things, why have we not really seen resistance to H-treonium yet from metallobeta-lactamase producing isolates? And I was like, that's an awesome question. I wish I thought of these things like Sam does. And um, Dr. Vila had a great answer, and he was like, you know, acetrianam actually binds zinc through this sulfonate intermediate, and it binds in such a way that it's pretty far from the active site, which I did not know. So this is all chemistry. And so if the enzymes were to narrow to fit acetrianam or to not rather to not fit acetrianam to mutate so that, you know, acetrianam was inactive, that enzyme would actually collapse so much that it would no longer be a carbapenemase because of the structure. And so this is all chemistry of hydrolysis and understanding how these things work. And so just I thought this was like the coolest session ever. He also went into these data about outer membrane vesicles and how metallobeta-lactamases are actually secreted into outer membrane vesicles and that different organisms have a different bacterial stress response to metallos. And so that's why some metallobeta-lactamases are even species-specific, which is really cool. Um, so highly recommend checking out that session if you can. Yeah, it was is really cool science, and the way he presented it was was so thought provoking and fascinating. And I want to get back to this point that you made about the membrane anchoring that protects NDM, because we've long been fearing the NDM 
introduction into the United States. And fortunately for us, based on our local epidemiology, we see NDM still very rarely, although there are sporadic cases in, in our country. And so one of the big questions in the CRE space is, well, what's going to be the next major mechanism? We have saw KPC come and go. We see things like Enterobacter now being very ubiquitous. Will there eventually be an NDM outbreak similar to what we've seen in India, or will this be more contained? And I think that's going to be a major epidemiological question for not only how we treat patients in the United States, but also it's very important for how we use some of our new antibiotics. Because as you know, Aaron, the new antibiotics that we have available now, like ceftazidime avibactam, meropenem vabibactam, and imipenem relibactam, the limitation of their spectrum is, of course, metallobetalactamases, where none of those combinations inhibit these enzymes. So I want to segue then into talking about a few products that are in the late stages of clinical development that do have activity against metallobetalactamase-producing enzymes. And in general, when we talk about the metallos, we're talking about NDM, IMP, and VIM, although there are other, are other types that are out there. Now, we've already talked about cefiterocol going back to some of our earlier episodes, and there's a number of new beta-lactamase inhibitors that are also entering late stages of development. I want to highlight just a couple of them. The first is Zytobactam. What's unique about Zytobactam is this is now what's kind of being popularly coined as an antibiotic enhancer. And so what they mean by that is not only is Zytobactam an effective beta-lactamase inhibitor that inhibits metallobetalactamase enzymes, but it also has high binding affinity for penicillin binding protein too. So not only is it a BLI, but it also works as like a beta-lactam to inhibit penicillin binding proteins and has this dual mechanism of action. Now, in clinical development, it's being partnered with cefepime. The in vitro data looks great. You have nice, very nice activity against metallos as well as serine-producing beta-lactamases. And it's also been shown in a number of murine models now to be highly active against metallo-beta-lactamase-producing organisms. So this is our first BLI-like Solbactam that in and of itself has penicillin-binding protein activity. So that's really interesting. It is. And it may not be the only one, Aaron, because Nacubactam is also in development. This is a very similar product that has affinity for penicillin-binding proteins and is a beta-lactamase inhibitor. This is being partnered with meropenem, but at this point is kind of slowed down in the early phases of development. So we'll wait to see what happens with nacubactam over the longer term. The next inhibitor is by a company known as Venatorex. They have a compound VNRX5133, which has recently been named Taniborobactam. Tanibobactam. I'm probably I'm, saying that wrong. I don't know. I'm just glad you had to say it, not me. <laughs> but hey, we had to draw straws. And, you, yeah. you also rocked Exabacase, which I have learned to say since the Ekman podcast, so I'm proud of you. I may or may not have been practicing that one. Um, proud I of suppose you. it's now publicly available information, but yeah. yes, thank you. Ryan and I repeat drug names <laughs> to ourselves all day. <laughs> so Venatorex, VNX, VNRX5133, this is a cyclic boronate beta-lactamase inhibitor that really has affinity for all enzymes. This includes ESBLs, oxacillinases, serine beta-lactamases like KPC, and metallobetalactamases like NDM, VIMP, and IMP. And they have just launched their phase three clinical program where they'll do a complicated urinary tract infection study, and we'd anticipate at least some top-line results as soon as next year. So keep, an, keep your eye out for VNRX5133 or Taniborobactam, um, which will be partnered with Cefepime in its clinical development as well. 
The newest kid on the block, and I mention this because it was introduced for the first time at ID Week 2019, is a new beta-lactamase inhibitor from QPEX, and this is called QPX7728. And this appears to be an incredibly potent beta-lactamase inhibitor, like Weber-Bactam, also developed from the same group of investigators. This is a baronic, uh, baronic acid beta-lactamase inhibitor that, again, has affinity for both serine and metallos, as well as oxacillinases. And what's unique about this compound, because it's in the earlier stages, it doesn't have a dedicated partner yet. Um, so we don't know if this will be combined with a carbapenem or a cephalosporin or something else. But regardless of its partner, what it shows in vitro is that no matter what beta-lactam you partner with, it restores the activity of that beta-lactam against CRE, including MBLs. Uh, and again, it was presented for the first time at ID Week. And so I encourage everybody to check out abstract number 677. This was presented by our friend and colleague, Mariana Castanhira from JMI, where she looked at 508 CRE isolates for the QPX7728 and showed a very interesting activity. So something certainly to keep on the lookout as these products continue to move forward in the antibiotic development pipeline. Yeah, that is, that's so neat. It honestly sounds too good to be true to beta-lactamase inhibitors that have the ability to block almost every beta-lactamase that we know of. Um, Mike Dudley from QPEX is another person I think that would really nerd out with us over this. He just loves good science too. And so it's, it's just great seeing these compounds being developed. You mentioned several of these beta-lactamase inhibitors are being paired with cefepime. So let's talk about cefepime. Um, I, you know, have a love and hate relationship with cefepime, and I think we have a lot to understand about the pharmacodynamics of this drug. So cefepime is a beta-lactam that I think as we learn more about beta-lactam therapeutic drug monitoring and TDM, this is something that should be on our radar to be monitoring, especially in our critically ill patients. And so there was a poster presented at ID Week. It was poster 1458. This was out of the group at University of Florida in Gainesville and then Midwestern and Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Chicago. So this poster was titled Characterizing Cefepime Neurotoxicity, Experience from a Tertiary Care Center Performing Beta-Lactam TDM. This is a very important concept because we do see this in our patients, and then we have providers who are afraid to give cefepime, and so they're putting patients on carbapenems or other things. And so the ability to do precision medicine with cefepime is very important for stewardship and for optimizing patient care. This neurotox thing, basically what we think happens is cefepime must have some kind of GABA-A inhibition or must inhibit GABA release mechanism unknown, but those are some thoughts. And the toxicodynamic range is, is not well-defined, so we don't know really what leads to neurotoxicity. But this same group of authors that presented this poster had previously published data, um, and they said that if you had a cefepime trough of 22, then your probability of neurotoxicity was 51.4%. Wow. And then... Yeah, that's a, that's a lot. And then in 2019, there was a pub in um, Clin Microbiology Infection, and they found that a trough of 21.6 was associated with neurotoxicity. And this group actually proposed that we should maintain troughs less than 7.5 in order to prevent neurotoxicity because no patients with a trough below 7.5 had neurotoxicity. That's interesting because, as we know, the CLSI breakpoint for cefepime for pseudomonas is 8. And so, and 
increasingly, I think we're seeing that we want troughs maybe, you know, four times the MIC for 100% of the dosing interval might be associated with resistance suppression and optimal outcomes. And so that means I can't safely give cefepime at the current breakpoint, which would be, you know, very, very important to know. As you know, Ryan, I'm a huge fan of all-in max dose, dose optimization of beta-lactams, but only if I can do that safely. And so we need these data. Um, but so this this poster, so this looked at adult patients from 2016 to 2018 who received at least five days of cefepime and had a cefepime trough greater than 25. So they took the cohort most likely to have neurotoxicity, and they wanted to assess this association between trough and neurotoxicity. As a note, they only do total concentrations um, because that's really the easiest way to get beta-lactam TDM right now. Cefepime is about 20% protein bound, so just keep that in mind when we're talking about these levels. They define neurotoxicity as an NCI by the NCI criteria, so a patient that met two or more of these criteria, which would include things like new confusion, delirium, drowsiness. And I think that's a good side note. Cephapeme neurotox is a whole syndrome of, of neuro-related yeah. disorders. It's not often epileptic convulsive seizures. It's, you know, new confusion and non-epileptic seizures and things like that, which are still morbid to our patients. But just to kind of put that in perspective for clinicians, they included 142 patients um, and 13% of them had some form of neurotoxicity, so 18 patients. Patients that had neurotoxicity had a longer length of stay. They were more likely to have renal dysfunction than patients without neurotoxicity. They were older, and 61% of them were in the ICU. The trough, so this is what we're looking for, right? What is this toxicodynamic target? They said that a trough greater than 60 was puts you at the highest risk for neurotoxicity. So that's much higher than previously stated. But again, these are only patients that had a trough greater than 25 to begin with. Um, the, the median troughs were 42 in the non-neurotox group versus 64 in the neurotoxic group. And this is important because mortality was higher in patients that had neurotoxicity, 33% versus 15%. The median duration to toxicity was seven days. Um, in the neurotoxicity group, 94% of patients were receiving 30-minute intermittent infusions versus 62% of patients were receiving intermittent infusions in the non-toxic group. So maybe this is a peak effect. We don't know. Does prolonged infusions mitigate neurotoxicity? We're not quite sure. Um, no patients with a creatinine clearance greater than 81 experienced neurotoxicity compared to 44% of patients with a creatinine clearance less than 20. So the, these data speak to what I think we're starting to understand in this space. The sicker you are, the more likely you are to have renal dysfunction. The longer you're on the drug, the more likely you are to have neurotoxicity. And um, one of the authors, Mark Sheets, also spoke in a PKPD symposium at ID Week, so not the poster, but a separate platform session. And he discussed the cefepime TDM data, and he was like, this has to become standard of care, that we're doing therapeutic drug monitoring on these patients because we know there's significant variability, and now we know there is a toxicity, and we can't just give everyone max dose all the time. He said they actually simulated 10 patients that had all had a creatinine clearance of 59, so kind of just picked a number and said, let's look at 10 patients that have the same renal function but are different humans and simulated cefepime exposures in those patients and saw significant variability. Some patients had peaks greater than 300. Some patients had peaks less than 10. Again, we don't know if peak or trough or total exposure is driving neurotoxicity, but he just kind of made the case and said, you know, I hope I stand up here in 5, 10 years and everyone 
anyone is doing beta-lactam TDM. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Aaron. I was uh, in Australia recently and spent some time with Jason Roberts and Jeffrey Lipman out there, really the world pioneers in, in, in monitoring beta-lactams. And it was so fascinating watching them in their ICU rounds, right? Because they would identify patients and it was just standard of care. Let's grab a cefepime level in this patient so we can monitor for these things. And I think what we see in the United States, because we don't have the same access to assays to measure beta-lactam concentrations is there's this pendulum effect, right? We know that Good exposures are associated with improved patient outcomes, including things like hard outcomes like mortality. So then the, the reaction is, well, we have to go to max, max tolerated doses to make sure we don't underdose these patients. But there is certainly perhaps for some drugs like cefepime a toxicity threshold that we have to be aware of, which in my mind only further reinforces the need for TDM here. I think Dr. Sheets's point about interpatient variability is also particularly a good point and one of the reasons why TDM absolutely has to be justified. So this is all about access. We know what to do with the information now. Now we just need to make sure that the assays are available and clinicians have access to them. Yeah, absolutely. And another space where therapeutic drug monitoring may be beneficial is when you're giving oral antibiotics. And so we talk about low bioavailability and high bioavailability agents and how that matters when we're treating infections. But really, bioavailability is just a proportion of antibiotic that gets into the bloodstream, right? And so if we're giving adequate doses that are safe and patients can tolerate them, then we can get more antibiotic into the bloodstream. And so bioavailability may not be as relevant if we can monitor levels we're getting in our patients. So the next poster I want to talk about out of ID Week was from Jesse Sutton and the rest of the stewardship team at the Salt Lake City VA in Salt Lake City, Utah. This is a really awesome team of people, physicians and pharmacists, and they looked at this low bioavailability versus high bioavailability oral antibiotics for definitive treatment of Enterobacteriaceae bacteremia from suspected urine source in hospitalized veterans. So again, we all know we've talked extensively about the benefits of IVDPO and using oral antibiotics. And what this question really is, is can we use beta-lactams, right? We, tep- we typically think beta-lactams are lower bioavailability than fluoroquinolones and Bactrim. Bactrim and fluoroquinolones come with a lot of toxicity, so we may want to avoid them. So is it safe to put our patients on oral beta-lactams? And that's the question this group sought to answer. So they looked at one source, which was nice. This is clean data. We can compare these patients. And they compared patients that received fluoroquinolones or Bactrim to beta-lactams. It was a retrospective analysis of 114 VA hospitals, and they included patients with E. coli, Klebsiella, and Proteus. The blood culture had to match the urine culture, and they had to be drawn within 24 hours of each other. The patient, again, also had to be hospitalized and had to receive at least one in vitro active empiric intravenous antibiotic for at least a day within 48 hours of the positive culture. And then they were switched to oral antibiotics alone on treatment day two through six. Their primary outcome was a composite of recurrent bacteremia and 30-day mortality from the first day of oral therapy. And they did statistics that seem reasonable. They were actually really seemed complex and intricate statistics. So kudos to them. <laughs> yeah, seem like, reasonable. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I could go into this or I could not. Um, but it seemed sound. They got accepted for an oral abstract. So kudos to them. They they did good work. We trust the group there for yeah, sure. Reasonable statistics. But okay, they. Sc- I'm sure I'm just going to get destroyed for that comment later. <laughs> That's fine. Good job, Jesse and colleagues. Okay. Anyway, back to the data. 
in this study, they screened 9,668 patients and ultimately had a population of 3,135 patients who received highly bioavailable agents. 78% of those were ciprofloxacin. And then 955 patients that received low bioavailability agents, which broke down to about a quarter Augmentin, a quarter Keflex, a quarter Cefpodoxime, and then other. These patients were predominantly male, mean age was 70, as you'd expect in a VA population. 20% of them had CKD, and 30% had a Charleston comorbidity score greater than 2. Um, the acute characteristics at the time of antibiotic initiation were similar. So the amount of patients that were in the ICU on vasopressors, white blood cell count, things like that, similar between groups. The median time to oral antibiotics was four days in the highly bioavailable group and five days in the low bioavailability group. So this was about three to four days of IV therapy before switching to oral therapy. And the median treatment duration was 14 days in both groups. Um, Dare I even say now that five to seven days of antibiotics is probably enough with emerging data that we have. And so that is something to note that these patients weren't switched until like day five. So does their step down agent really matter? that much, to be honest. And so 14 days, obviously, this is historic data when that was our treatment duration for gram-negative bacteremia. Now we know short course seven days in these uncomplicated urinary sources is probably fine. So I just think that's an important side note on this topic. Um, So the primary outcome, again, which was a composite of recurrent bacteremia and 30-day mortality, was 3% in the high bioavailability group and 4.4% in the low. This was not significant. Um, Recurrent bloodstream infections was 0.4% in the high-risk group and uh, high-risk, I'm sorry, high bioavailability, and 1.5% in the low bioavailability group. This was a relative risk of 3.2. It was not significant. And again, you're looking at half a percent versus one and a half percent. Mortality was about 3% in both groups. Again, they had that kind of composite endpoint. So what they found was consistent with previous studies that are showing us that beta-lactams are probably safe and effective for um, these urinary source enterobacteriaceae bacteremias to step down to. We do need to understand the risk of recurrence and why there is this numerical difference, at least. Um, They did say there was a high rate of urologic comorbidities in their population, and that may have led to an increased risk of recurrence. When you get to dosing, and so back to kind of our original lead in point of the beta-lactam therapeutic drug monitoring, they use standard doses. So when they step patients down, they were getting one double-strength BID of Bactrim, 875 Q12 of Augmentin. We know that patients can get two grams twice a day of Augmentin for pneumonia and do fine. So that dose is probably safe for bloodstream infections too. And so should we just give more beta-lactam and then maybe patients would do a little bit better? Not quite sure. But I think awesome work by this group. This is a really important question we all want to answer. We'd love to use more beta-lactams if we can. Um, And that's I think, wraps that one up. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Erin. When I hear about this study, I'm thinking, okay, median duration of 14 days, and now what we know about short-course therapy for bacteremia, I wonder how many patients in a study like this that have suspected urinary source for bloodstream infection would actually qualify for what we know now are developing factors for patients that can safely be treated for seven days, and then what role potentially oral antibiotics play in finishing up that seven-day course. So certainly primes future studies to answer those very questions. Absolutely. And the other thing I do want to point out very quickly on this duration of therapy concept is poster 1032. This was the impact of an antimicrobial stewardship team-led initiative at patient 
discharge to assess appropriate durations of therapy. This was out of the University of Maryland Prince George's Hospital, and they said within 24 hours of discharge, an antimicrobial stewardship team member would attend multidisciplinary discharge rounds, and they would talk about the antibiotic selection and the duration. And and they saw decreased antibiotic exposure, less ADRs in their patients, and the opportunity to educate providers about new data and guideline concordant prescribing. The patients were happier because patients don't have to take pills for longer. And so I think the other huge thing that we're going to see more emerging data in is this evaluating discharge antibiotic prescriptions. That's probably where our most egregious antibiotic errors occur. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. So let's change gears now. And Aaron, you may have heard we have new CAP guidelines now. Stop it. Yes. Really? <laughs> CAP guidelines were released the week of ID week. They were released on Tuesday and the meeting started when? They were released during the SIDP annual meeting. Yeah. Can you imagine having a 500 pharmacists in a room and everyone seeing on Twitter that the CAP guidelines are published? Like, I actually can't was... imagine the corresponding Twitter storm when new guidelines are published in the SIDP meeting. Um, so these guidelines, as you know, um, have, been, have not been updated since 2007. So this has been a long-awaited update to the guidelines. And I think between when they were released and when we're recording this, lots of people have already had preliminary discussions on this. And I want to point everyone's attention to a presentation that Emily Heil just gave at the ACCP annual meeting in a very nice tutorial that you did, Aaron, on her slides, which really highlights some of the major changes in the CAP guidelines. And so I don't want to rehash everything that Emily outlined so eloquently. I know. We can, like, skip the section of the podcast. Everyone just go read Emily Heil's slides. They're beautiful. Maybe, Maybe we should. But no, Ryan, talk about CAP. People, right. The CAP guidelines got published. We have to go through the data. All right, all right. So three presenters in this session, and this was really the only session that I saw at ID Week where they talked about the new CAP guidelines, and a lot of that is because of the timing and when they were released. So the first presenter in this session was Seema Jane. You recognize her. We've already mentioned her work with the EPIC study that was published in New England Journal of Medicine in 2015. And really what we learned about that study is Many times, and most times, we don't know the causative pathogen of CAP. And even when we try really hard to find the causative pathogen, many times it's actually a virus and and not bacteria. And I think she made a very important point in reminding the audience that CAP is really a syndrome of lung inflammation, and it can be due to both infectious and non-infectious causes. And this is a very heterogeneous syndrome, and we have to keep that in mind when we're implementing antibiotics for these patients. And that's complicated by the fact that the diagnostics are not very sensitive for helping us figure out what is the causative pathogen, particularly after patients have already been started on antibiotics. The next presenter was Dr. Michael Niederman, and really he focused on the guidelines themselves and what changed, and this is, I think, what most people want to know. And certainly there's been a lot of debate on social media and in other platforms about how useful these kinds of guidelines are. And you can debate whether what was and was not included in the guidelines But Dr. Niederman made a very important point, which I totally agree with. And he said, you know, things weren't so great before we had guidelines. So let's be careful about how critical we are of these guidelines, because again, this should be a template that individual centers can adopt as they see fit. And so he gave a brief rundown of some of the major changes in the guidelines, and I'll recap those now. First of which, for patients in which we're starting empiric therapy and there's severe CAP and we're starting empiric therapy for MRSA and pseudomonas and they have qualifying risk factors, we need to try really hard to get sputum and blood cultures from those patients so we can de-escalate. 
We no longer withhold antibiotics based on procalcitonin. We know this is an insensitive test for a lot of patients in starting and initiating therapy for CAP. The major and minor criteria for when to admit these patients to the ICU has really not changed and is very similar since what we was proposed in 2007. There's now a strong recommendation for beta-lactam monotherapy for outpatients, and macrolide monotherapy has been deprioritized, particularly for patients with comorbid illnesses in the outpatient setting. As far as inpatient setting, the approach is still beta-lactams plus a macrolide, so Many have argued, well, perhaps you could just use a beta-lactam alone and we don't need to cover atypicals, but the guidelines clearly state that we should still use a macrolide. Some changes, though, that are adopted into the guidelines is now we know that there's not a recommendation to cover anaerobes for aspiration pneumonia. I think this will make a big change in our daily practice when we hear about these kinds of conversations. There's also not the need for routine steroids and severe CAP, particularly CAP caused by influenza. So steroids are out unless patients have other indications. What is interesting about viral CAP is that we should always be starting antibiotics um, with antivirals, and this is an important consideration that is highlighted in the guidelines. And finally, something that I think we really appreciate as antibiotic stewards is that we can now minimize the duration of therapy to really five days for patients that have an adequate clinical response. Now, one of the things I think everybody was excited to see in the new guidelines is we've gotten rid of this terminology of HCAP, which we know in doing this day-to-day stewardship thing really drove a lot of broad-spectrum antibiotic use, probably unnecessarily. So HCAP is out, and in lieu of that, now they want to focus on very specific factors for when you should and should not cover for MRSA and Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And I think this is really going to drive at one of the major controversies in the guidelines is these are hard things to define. And so we know for patients that are severely ill and they, if they have risk factors, we absolutely should be covering for MRSA and Pseudomonas in the empiric setting because of their critical illness. Now, the guidelines say you should use local risk factors and local epidemiology to help you determine what these patients are. And Dr. Niederman made a very important point is that most centers don't know what their local risk factors are, nor are they really well equipped to implement them. And I think this is going to be something that we have to learn over time with the new CAP guidelines. Yeah, I think this is going to be challenging for centers to go through and validate their local data, but it's something we need to start doing in every space. And in the meantime, I think we can all agree the HCAP risk factors were way too broad and nonspecific and way overcalled the use of these broad-spectrum agents. And really the things that matter are, does my patient have a history of MRSA or pseudomonas? Have they received antibiotics in the past 90 days, particularly intravenous antibiotics, and have they been hospitalized? Those are consistently teased out to be risk factors. And otherwise, that's a lot of kind of he said, she said, and not that important. And if they're not that sick, hold off on starting these broad agents. Well, and and that's the thing, right? Because what the new guidelines clearly recommend is if your patients don't have severe CAP, you hold off at all costs. You really don't want to be starting empiric therapy for MRSA or pseudomonas if you can help it. Now, I think the other thing that that is debatable in the guidelines is there's really no um, no difference in what was in the 2007 version versus this version as, as it relates to fluoroquinolones. We know respiratory fluoroquinolones may still have a role in the inpatient and outpatient settings. And what's different is the NICE guidelines in Europe really are different in this regard, is that they don't, the fluoroquinolones don't appear regularly in those guidelines, and that's something certainly different than what we see in the IDSA guidelines. And then I think the final question that many of us have now and in the context of what we've talked about in this podcast series is, well, where do you start to use these new agents? Agents like amatacycline, lefamulin, and delafloxacin that have been studied for CAP or at least non-inferior to moxifloxacin, perhaps safer, 
Where are they going to fit in these treatment algorithms? And those questions really still remain to be defined. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's kind of a bummer that those those drugs weren't included in the guidelines, because as we talked about in our third episode, when drugs aren't in the guidelines, it's hard to convince people to use them. Um, some of these drugs absolutely are going to have a role and are nice options for CAP. I mean, they all have their pluses and minuses, but um, I'm intrigued to see where they emerge as non-fluoroquinolone, at least leflamulin and amatacycline non-fluoroquinolone options for outpatient oral options for outpatient community-acquired pneumonia. Yeah, totally agree. I just want to give uh, a quick kudos to Sarah Cosgrove. She was the third presenter in this session, and she talked about diagnostics and CAP. She went through a lot of the data with procalcitonin and respiratory viral panels and even some of the new respiratory bacterial panels as well. But the one thing she pointed to on the horizon that I think is really kind of intriguing for our audience here is how we can perhaps use host gene expression patterns to predict what the common etiologies are of CAP. And so there's uh, this gaining steam in in this space of using these gene expression patterns to predict when CAP is caused by viruses, bacteria, or something else. And in fact, they've done now some clinical validation studies. And for cases that have been clinically adjudicated where we have a causative pathogen and we have some sense of these gene expression patterns, it's actually been shown to have an 87% accuracy in predicting the, the ultimate etiology of CAP which for a frame of reference is better than procalcitonin, which only has about a 78% accuracy. And what's even more exciting is there's now point-of-care tests being developed to look at host gene expression patterns in the setting of CAP, so certainly something to keep on your radar moving forward. Wow, that's awesome. I didn't know that, and that's really, that's really cool, too. There's so much cool things going on. Yeah. Um, you know what else is cool? or maybe not that cool, but we have to talk about it, or I think people will riot and, like, turn this off and never listen to us again, is vancomycin. I know, drum roll. I I love how you just... I just, like, like got really excited in my seat, you guys. For frame of reference, her arms are waving in the studio here today. She legitimately is is excited, but I noticed you stopped yourself short of saying, you know what's really exciting, and then you just couldn't say vancomycin. I know. Well... I mean, I can't hate on Vanco that much. It's a good. It's been around a long time. Um, people, people love vancomycin, though. Let me tell you. So there was an eight a.m. session, eight o'clock in the morning on Thursday at ID Week about Vanco. People are out the door. They had to create an extra spillover room in the middle of the session. So kudos to Vincent Tam, who was moderating the session, who navigated all these excited people very quickly. I was, in fact, so excited during this session that I actually spilled my latte in my hair, which I don't even know how I did that. But I do need to give a shout out to Drew Zimmer, who is a pharmacist who was standing next to me and immediately offered me his jacket. So if you're out there and you're listening, thank you again. That was really nice of you. Um, And yes, I just admitted that I spilled my pumpkin spice latte all over my hair um, during the Vanco session. But okay, let's focus on Vanco. So this session was led by Dr. William Musick from Houston Methodist and then Dr. Jennifer Lee from UC San Diego. And they discussed their experiences with converting their institutions to AUC or area under the curve guided dosing of vancomycin. And so the Vanco guidelines are coming out. They should be published by the end of 2019. And so some centers have already switched and because the guidelines are going to recommend AUC guided dosing. 
So Houston uses DoseMeRx software. UC San Diego uh, at Rady Children's Hospital uses Precise PK. And it was a great session. So they kind of walked through how they've chosen to invest in these Bayesian models, how Bayesian is really the way to go, and that's what the guidelines are going to prefer over traditional PK equations. Uh, Obviously, the huge downside is cost, and this is what institutions are increasingly going to have to do. What these both of these presenters emphasized throughout the session is that when we start to make the switch from trough-guided to AUC-guided dosing, we cannot underestimate how difficult it is to implement a paradigm shift. And we've talked about this with behavioral science and stewardship throughout this session. When we start to do this, one, we need to do it because it's the right thing to do for our patients. It is safer, and we cannot emphasize that message enough, and that's what we need to tell people about why you're switching to AUC-guided dosing. Pharmacists, physicians, nurses, your laboratory staff, everyone needs to get excited about this change and be involved in this change because it will impact everyone. You're getting two levels now. You're going to have to make decisions about are you going to get levels on the first dose or are you going to wait till steady state? I think first dose is valuable because we know that really the AUC in the first 24 to 48 hours is probably the most important for clinical care, the right drug at the right exposure as early as possible and the onset of infection. However, we also know that a lot of patients don't need vancomycin, and so getting two levels on everyone in the first dose may be unnecessary, so you might want to wait to steady state. These are the conversations your institution is going to have to have. Other conversations they had were, can we clinically exclude certain populations? So I think there's some data to support flat dosing for patients with skin and soft tissue infections. UTIs, you probably should never need vancomycin, but should you, flat dosing is probably okay, and a trough just for safety is probably fine. We still don't know in patients on renal replacement therapy and with acute kidney injury, since they have changing dynamics and exposures, AUC dosing is going. their AUC is going to change every day, and so trough-based dosing is probably okay too. So why make this switch? And again, we're not going to talk through the guideline recommendations because they're not out just quite yet. So we'll probably do another podcast when they do come out. But just know that this is coming for AUC dosing and why should we consider making this switch is what this session was really focused on, the how and the why. And actually, I think we talked about Emily Heil with CAP. We're going to talk about her again in Vanco because I like Emily. She's great. Shout out, Emily. Yeah. But so Emily actually said this best recently, like why make the switch? I mean, there's ways to discuss both back and forth, but not only is this safer and the right thing to do for our patients, but she said that the additional oversight at their institution when they switched to AUC dosing, which led to you know pharmacists monitoring every single patient, really critically evaluating how to dose these patients, this oversight and this focus on vancomycin with their AUC-guided program made them evaluate more critically if patients need vanco at all. And so overall, they're stopping vanco more. They're using less vancomycin as an institution, and that's a reason to make the switch. Last cool thing about this session. So I go to sit down at this session. I look to my right, and I am sitting next to Steve Ebert. And I was like, no freaking way. This is so cool. (laughs) So for those of you who don't know, Steve Ebert is a pharmacist um, at Meritor Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin, He studied under Bill Craig at the University of Wisconsin, and he presented the original PKPD model in 1987 in poster form at ICAC and showed that AUC was the pharmacokinetic pharmacodynamic parameter best predictive of safety and efficacy for staph aureus infections, 1987. And then he's sitting next to me in the audience as we finally see people start to implement this dosing strategy. So that was just really cool. 
yet, you know, it only took uh, over 30 years for us to to make the switch. But um, I think you outlined all the reasons why this is an important thing to do for patients now. I know locally we're in the process of doing this as well. And I think it will have a huge impact on not only the safety of vancomycin, but as Emily said, how we're ultimately using vancomycin as well. Yeah. And I mean, it's hard. I mean, it took 30 years, but hindsight's twenty twenty, right? We thought in the 2009 Vanco guidelines said that troughs were okay, that they would be an appropriate surrogate for AUC. And, and they were. To be fair, a trough greater than 15 does, in fact, get you an AUC exposure of 400. But the problem is you're way overshooting in patients. And we know now that troughs greater than 15 and AUCs greater than 550 or 600 are associated with more nephrotoxicity. So time to switch back and, and do AUC dosing. Yeah, it goes to show you, we just continue to learn year after year, and that's what makes our field so special. Now, I think the other thing that we're continuing to learn more and more about is rapid diagnostics, and we'll want to wrap up the episode by talking about a randomized controlled trial of rapid diagnostic tests. And yes, you heard me correct. This is a randomized controlled trial that was done by a group out of the Mayo Clinic. Ridu Benjir and Robin Patel are the lead investigators here. So this is abstract number 640. This is a randomized controlled trial evaluating the clinical impact of rapid identification and antimicrobial susceptibility testing for gram-negative bacteremia known as the RAPIDS-GN study. In this study, this is a multi-center prospective randomized controlled trial where patients were randomized to receive standard of care testing alone, which would be your normal workup in the microbiology, plus what your stewardship team is normally doing, compared to patients who were tested with the Accelerate Pheno system, which we know is a rapid phenotypic test for patients directly from a positive blood culture, in addition to the, to the normal stewardship and standard of care procedures. And what's particularly important is that, again, both arms in this study had active stewardship interventions. So really the difference is standard of care versus Accelerate Pheno. And the primary endpoint of this study was time to first antibiotic change within 72 hours of randomization. Overall, they enrolled 448 patients in their intention-to-treat analysis, including 226 in the standard-of-care arm and 222 in the rapid uh, phenotypic arm, which we'll call the rapid arm. And not surprisingly, when you test the bug earlier with these new platforms, they showed a median 24.8 hours faster time to gram-negative antibiotic change, and stewardship interventions were much more common in this setting. So I think the other thing that's important to, to look at in this study is how well the assay performed itself. And it looks like across all the organisms that were identified in both arms, um, upwards of 90% of all the organisms were identified by the Accelerate Pheno system. So in general, for most of your local epidemiologies, this is a platform that will catch most of the gram-negative pathogens causing bacteremia. So certainly we know you can get faster time to antibiotic change and faster time to stewardship intervention, but what about the hard outcomes that ultimately we have to use to justify paying for these new diagnostics? And I think one of the more important findings of this study is that even though patients received new gram-negative agents sooner, there was no difference in terms of overall 30-day mortality, which was similar in both arms between 8 to 11%. The length of stay was similar between 8 to 10 days in both arms, and readmission rates were similar in both arms. They also looked at other secondary endpoints in terms of acquisition of new resistant pathogens, and those were also similar in both arms. Now, I think it's very important in a study like this to point out that this study was certainly not powered to show outcome differences. In fact, you may need several hundreds, if not thousands of patients in each arm to show some of these subtle differences. But I think it's very important because as clinicians, these are the data we need. These are the data that our administrators are asking for. What is the impact of these new diagnostics? And here we have a randomized control 
controlled trial that says we can start antibiotics sooner, but there was no net effect on outcomes. So what might be some of the reasons why they didn't show an outcome difference? And I think one of the important aspects of this study that needs to, to be brought to attention is that they found very few multidrug-resistant pathogens in either arm. So of the 220-ish patients in each arm, only about 40 patients in each arm were infected with a multidrug-resistant gram-negative pathogen, which would include ESBL, CRE, or multidrug-resistant pseudomonas. And those MDR pathogens are particularly important because we know with our empiric antibiotics, we're much more likely to miss with our empiric coverage when those resistant pathogens are present. And so perhaps that's where the true benefit of these tests are. And again, we need to screen lots of patients to ultimately find these patients where we're missing with our empiric our empiric coverage. So more to come here. We're also starting to see in this space other people report their anecdotal experience with rapid diagnostics, including the Accelerate Pheno, and it all looks favorable. We just need to be able to know what the true outcomes are over the longer term and in larger studies. Yeah, I think looking at these studies both ways, so if you have active therapy on board up front, then that your patient's going to be okay, and RAPIDS can help you de-escalate, which is good, but perhaps more importantly is RAPIDS helping us escalate, and as you pointed out, there wasn't a lot of resistance in this study, so we'll see. Very, very interesting, but that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you guys for hanging out with us for four episodes as we worked through the ID Week conference. You are listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Podcast. I'm Erin McCree joined by Ryan Shields and thank you guys so much. 